Welcome to Obsessed with Design, a show about what makes designers tick. My name's Josh Miles. Today we have a guy who may be one of the nicest guys you'd meet in Hollywood. His name is Chris Perrin. Chris is a story artist, got his start in animation, and even directed Cloudy with a chance of meatballs too. So we're going to get a cool look into the background of how films get made in the animated world. You can get all of today's show notes on our website at obsessedshow.com. Also check us out on Twitter. We are at Obsessed Show and I'm at Josh Miles. While you're at it, head on over to iTunes and please give us a rating and a review. And you can be sure to hit that subscribe button as well. So now without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Chris Perrin. All right, guys, I am super excited to welcome our first Hollywood guy to our show, Obsessed with Design. Today we have story artist and director Chris Perrin. Chris, thanks so much for being on Obsessed with Design. Thanks for having me, Josh. Real pleasure to be here. Well, yeah, I'd like to, we, we joke around with Jason Cooper, who's our director of accounts here at Miles Herndon, because, you know, every other story with Jason starts with, well, back when I worked in Hollywood. So we always <laughs> respond to Jason with, we get it, Jason, you used to work in the film industry. We got it. It's very cool. But, but, the, but I understand you guys work together when you're in L.A. Yeah. And the thing Jason doesn't tell you is like our little part of Hollywood is probably the most humble, like insignificant, quiet corner of the business. <laughs> we are in animation, the, the least sexy of all the Hollywood opportunities, but uh, it's the most stable and you meet the nicest people, people like Jason. So, Well, I'd like <laughs> to hear how you got into animation in the first place, like how you how you got introduced to this. You know, I to me, it seems like, um, you know, I used to, to draw and I, I fancied myself more of an artist or illustrator when I was in school over design. Right. And I didn't really learn about design until I got in school. So I'm, I'm really curious to hear your path uh, and how you got introduced to animation. Okay. I, I grew up in, um, in a small farming community just outside of London, Ontario, Canada. Um, and I wasn't any good at hockey or baseball. Um, so for me to meet <laughs> girls and have, you know, have the big guys stop punching me, I became the art kid. And, uh, you know, drawing was just sort of my tool for communicating. And my gateway when I was a kid was always comics. Like I love the Saturday morning comics, not, not the superhero stuff, but the, the three, you know, three panel joke or the one panel mm. joke, uh, mm -hmm. far side and Calvin Hobbes and, it's very cliche because half the people in my industry are, are the same. Um, but like I grew up obsessed with just trying to capture emotion and movement. And I didn't know animation was a thing, though. Like, you know, as 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 you grow up in, in the pre-internet age, we didn't have like the making of. We didn't have all the, you know, you could Google and see how they actually make this stuff. So when you'd go watch the movies, you would just think, well, that's just something that's in the world. You wouldn't think that humans actually, you know, suffered making it like it wasn't <laughs> something that ever felt real uh, when I was. In my last year of high school, being the art kid, um, I was at that point a lot of artistic kids come to where you're compromising. You're trying to figure out, how, okay, you know, this has been fun my whole life. I've done a lot of tattoos. I've done a lot of album covers. But what do I do next? Um, you know, do I, do I starve or do I, do I get a real job? Um, and I had a guidance counselor who told me about Sheridan College, which is in Oakville, Ontario. 
at the time, like I said, this is all pre-internet, uh, there was really two schools in North America that taught classical animation. There was Sheridan in Toronto and CalArts in California. And why that is, I couldn't really even tell you why this weird little community college had an animation program, but it was kind of world-renowned and a bit of a secret. So when I applied, it was it was still a very quiet program. I got in very very lucky to get in. And the year I got into college was the year Lion King blew open. It was, it, and and, and mm. Lion King kind of led to this expansion of 2D animation. So DreamWorks open, Universal open, all of these studios were trying to get on to the, the, the bandwagon. And the other thing that happened was, if you remember in the early 90s, the cable network started to expand. So suddenly you had all of this room for content. So I went from being a farm kid slugging hay and the tasseling corn and, you know, dehorning goats with my dad, uh, you know, to being, uh, you know, suddenly making a thousand bucks a week drawing, you know, props for cartoons in the city of Toronto in between years at, at, at school. So it was a really, it was just an amazing opportunity at the right time. And I, you know, I probably burned all my life luck at that moment. So, <laughs> <laughs> and so you went, um, pretty much straight from school straight into animation, right? Yeah. And my first day of college, like I'd never, I'd never done life drawing. I had never, I didn't know what a peg bar was, which if your listeners don't know, it's how we used to animate. So you had this, this registration bar that had these, these pegs and you would put paper on it. And you know, the, the first page was your first drawing and you put another page over top and that would be your second drawing and you would flip. And even just the whole mechanics of how people animated, I didn't have a clue. Like I just had enough of my portfolio that I got in. And, um, for me, it was like suddenly going to, it was, it was like that ugly duckling thing where I landed in a place where everybody was like me and we were all just sort of coming up together. And there was, one guy who had an illusion of life book was like he was like you know the master who knew who knew more than everybody else but for the most part we were all kind of at the same level and it was just great it was a great moment of of just sort of awakening and really lucky so how do you go from you know your your early work in animation and talk us through kind of the difference between some of your early roles and what a, what a story artist looks like and really how a story artist becomes a director Right. Well, I mean, I mean, I guess that maybe the place to start is to define what the job is. So for people who don't know what a storyboard artist does. Sorry, there's a siren going by. We OK in the sound? Oh, yeah. We collect the whole set of all the background. All right. Noises. We've had sandpaper and, <laughs> and machines dogs, in the background, yeah. dogs, babies. Yeah. Gunshots. Uh, no gunshots well, I mean, yet. So <laughs> or really what a story artist is. So when, when you're visualizing a, a screenplay, Unlike live action where you have a set and, you know, cameras and actors that can walk out there and immediately you start learning. Once you put words in an actor's mouth, you start to learn about your your process. With animation being about a million dollars a minute for feature animation, less for TV, but still very expensive. There's not a lot of room to learn once you get into production. So we storyboard to basically try to make the movie a few times before we make the movie. And so it's like a comic strip. And, and the reason we, we still do it is because it's cheaper to throw away drawings and to throw away digital assets. And you can actually 
think as fast as you can draw. So you can you can generate a lot of warmth and, and almost facsimile a movie. So the pathway for me to animation was or to storyboarding was really through animation. So back in the old days we used to do everything on a paper. And it was twenty four drawings for one second of film. Sometimes it was twelve drawings for one second, depending if you're shooting on twos or ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and my first job was working uh, for a company called uh, Fox Animation in Phoenix, Arizona. They made Anastasia and Titan AE, and, uh, and it was Don Bluth directing. So he's the guy who created Secret of Nim and Land Before Time. And my job was literally to put drawings in between other drawings. So the key animators and. If you go back into the 90s and before that, you were lucky to find 20 people in the world that draw and rotate your characters. And and if you can get those people who can act as well as handle the drawing and the design and the shifting of space and and, and form, um, they would become your key animators. And what a key animator does is block big movements of time through posing. And what we would do as in-betweeners is we would go in and fill in that time and when you're spacing out your drawings, I mean, the closer the drawings are, the slower the movement. The further apart they are, the more speed. So I was learning the craft of movement and controlling design and shape as we moved in and out of space. So that was really my pathway. So from that job, uh, I got into doing design, which was, you know, a lot of location design, uh, character design, because wanting to be a story artist, I knew I needed to have an understanding of camera. So and when I say I, I knew I needed some of this wasn't even willful. Some of it was just trying to survive. So, you know, you take whatever job you, you, you can get. <laughs> right. um, but but I kind of went through the pathway of, uh, you know, I, 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 I was sort of a mediocre animator. I was a mediocre designer. I was a mediocre layout guy. And then the whole 2D industry collapsed. And if you remember when Toy Story came out, that was like this great awakening for animation in America. But for me, being a hand-drawn guy, it was the sound of this sort of, death knell for our craft it was this sort of you know it was like this 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 i mean we were all in denial like the world's not ending no that meteor's not going to hit us and then boom hit us and then suddenly all these studios were collapsing and i had just had a kid or my wife had a kid i was there when it happened but she did all part um and and we were living in the states and and it was just it felt like it felt like you know everything was unstable so we went home and back to canada and back in Canada, the industry was very much driven towards television. So I was doing a lot of design stuff on preschool shows and, tel- and making a decent living. But I was really frustrated because all of those skills that I was learning and developing and the thing I was mentoring towards, which was movement and, and like the flow of form and shape, I wasn't doing any of that. Mm. And what I saw was the storyboard artists were the only guys that were really touching that sort of skill set. And it was also the highest paid job in the business. And because it was the highest paid job, it was the hardest job to get. And so I was in a situation where there was a bit of a catch 22 to get boards. You have to do boards to do boards. You have to get boards. And it really goes back to college. I mean, that networking that you do when you're young, it was the thing that gave me my break. So a friend of mine who was a, a series director on a TV show in Ottawa called me up one day. The show was in a crisis. You know, they lost the board artist. Would I be, he, he knew I could hold a pencil. He said, will you do it? And I said, <laughs> yes. And it nearly killed me because it was the hardest work I'd ever done in my life. Cause it's like any job. If you don't have the shortcuts, you do it all wrong. You know what I mean? But yeah. I just, I did it all wrong without any sleep for four weeks and it nearly killed me. And I thought I'll never do that again. And it turned out that the guy who was slugging the board, so slugging, 
Working is where you put time on the board, and time is everything in animation. Mm. He was working at the company I was working at in Toronto, just down the hallway. He liked the board. He said, who did that? This is the guy named Chris Perrin. He said, well, I, I know. He goes, he's done the hallway. I need a board artist. And then I got a roster job. And the next thing you know, I was a story artist. And that was sort of like, it's, it is really like you just have to say yes to every opportunity and hope you survive it. That's sort of been my my lesson out of that experience. But um yeah, did that explain it, or was that just a lot of talking to not? Well, well yeah, I, I think that was a good path. Um, so, how do you go from that to directing, though? Well, I mean, the the thing about the story team. So, actually, when I I, I did TV boards for um, about three years in Toronto, and then there was another boom in animation. So, the three D boom had started to flare up, and new studios were opening all over the place, and. Sony Pictures Animation, where I met Jason, um, was a brand new company, and it was founded by these people who left DreamWorks. So they had just mm-hmm. started up this this company. As with anything in any kind of corporate structure, there was anti-poaching laws and stuff. So they were very careful about who they were hiring. And so they needed to get a crew right, right away. And so they were kind of hiring people off the street. So I applied from Canada, um, did a test, and got got offered a position down there. So when you're in a story team on a feature film, you start off in a crew with like five to 10 people and you're really at the front end of production. So what you get to see and what you get to experience, you get to experience all the politics of the executives. You get to be in the room and and pitch those stories and try to sell your director's vision right from the gate. And then very quickly, that screenplay that you guys all start out with, it gets hammered to pieces and it ends up in just tatters. And so after about maybe six or seven months on a project, you start to actually write stuff. And it's not even that you're writing writing. It's that you're you're working into sequences and you're working into parts of the film that are – you've learned something about but now it's sort of back in the unknown space so now you're trying to come up you're what ifing and all of that is like training to become a director so you're 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 basically in a way it's like if you look at executives like skittish dog you're in the room with them and they're smelling your hand and they get to know you and they get to sort of understand <laughs> and you get to know them i mean it's like trying to train a bear it's like at any point this this thing can turn on me but i'm going to be really careful and you start to learn how to do that in the room and you and like just even being around other directors and watching them win and lose arguments was really helpful. And so I think all of that between between the craft of like developing the muscles of what ifing, which is really what screenwriters do, you know, the muscles of what ifing is sort of how a story comes into place. Um, and then the politics. I think that's why a lot of story artists end up becoming directors because you're just in that soup. Does that make sense? Yeah. So what's a what's an average day or average week look like for you? How much are you at the boards drawing and and, you know, how much are you in meetings or pitching or, you know, what what's a week look like for you right now? It, it Right now, it's a lot of drawing. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm in a job where my my role is really just the muscle. Like I'm just in there just slugging boards and putting them into editorial. So, um, you know, I, I basically get to work at 930 and I leave sometimes at 10 p.m. And, you know, I don't have much of a life in between there, but I'm, I'm on I'm on location. So it's OK. I don't have my kids here. And, and, you know, every job's a little different. Like when I was directing, I was drawing a lot less and in more meetings. And, and then sometimes when I, I've done had a story on a few different projects, which is where you're managing the story department. And in that situation, I'm doing less drawing and more sitting in editorial and just sort of trying to manage the, the reels and make sure that everything gets done. So uh, every gig is a little bit different. But um, 
there's no quick way to draw. I mean, it just did. I mean, I draw fairly fast, but to put up enough drawings to tell a story, it just you just have to sit there at your desk and spend long hours in the dark and just draw. <laughs> draw. <laughs> there's nothing sexy about it. There's, so there's no Hollywood in that. It's just it's the coal mine. <laughs> so what's the life cycle for a typical project for you? Do you find that you're with a studio doing multiple projects in a row or is it typically more of a freelance model where you come in and work on a film and then go work on another film somewhere else? Um, I mean, that's a paradigm that's always shifting too. So I was at, I was at Sony for 11 years. So on that run, it was very much like a stable kind of old Hollywood style system of jobs. So I come yeah. off of movie and go on to the next movie and each movie's different. So I think I was on Cloudy 1 for five years. I was on Cloudy 2 for three years. I did a couple projects for Aardman. Uh, Arthur Christmas is one I'm pretty proud of. Nobody saw it, but I think it's a good movie. Um, <laughs> but it, that was a two-year. And it really does depend on the director, on the script, on the studio, sort of what their hunger is. And then what my role is. Like sometimes I would – like I work with Jason for the first time on Surf's Up. and that movie, I was kind of pinch hitting. So I think I probably spent about eight months on that film. But others on that crew were on it for three or four years. So really, you know, the life cycle of a film is usually, I'd say, three to five years. Sometimes it's a little quicker. Sometimes it's a little longer. depends on the politics of it. But um, that's job security for me. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned Cloudy, Cloudy with Chance of Meatballs. Um, the first one was a five-year project. On my job. It was longer. I mean, I think in total it was like 10 years in production. So. So tell us a little bit of the background of that, that project and how it went on so long and kind of why the pre-production was, was so long in particular on that film. Well, it's an interesting case study in how a story comes to be. Like, uh, it was IP from a children's book, which, uh, is beloved and people, you know, a lot of people have read it and a lot of people, you know, have memories attached to their childhood or to reading, reading it to their kids. And so there's this sort of property that everybody wanted to make. The problem is there was no story. Like it was a happening. It was like once upon a time there was an island and it's food fell from the sky. So um, the directors, Miller and Lord, uh, Chris, Chris Miller and Phil Lord, who have become huge in Hollywood. But at the time, they were kind of starting out in the feature business. They came in and they pitched the take. What if we made a disaster movie for kids? And everybody got really excited about it. And we started to make that movie. I'm really jumping over a lot of steps here. There was a screenplay and then they got fired and then they got rehired and there was another screenplay and all this sort of stuff. But at some point – um, about a year and a half into it, somebody in marketing said, we can't sell a disaster movie to kids. There's no market for a disaster movie to kids. So suddenly we were making this movie and nobody knew why we were making this movie. And so you end up in this sort of world where you're constantly, every time you screen the film, you're worried, oh my God, are they going to make it or are they going to shut us down? And at the same time, there was all this politics going on at the studio in terms of regime changes and stuff, which happened. It's it's like Rome. Like Hollywood is like Rome. You know, there's like the second season <laughs> is done you know all of like or it's actually more like a lion pride the new lion comes in and looks at all the cubs and starts killing them you know and you're just hoping that he doesn't see you hiding in the rocks because you want to make your movie you know <laughs> and so we had we had all of this sort of stuff happening and i remember there was like a really dark kind of moment where everybody in the crew was tense and and you know we weren't sure if the movie was going to get made and i go in and talk to the executive that we had at the time um and you know just sort of say you know what's happening you know i'm trying to lead this crew and i don't know what to tell them and we're frustrated and people are yelling at each other and it's just and he stood up and he patted me on the back and says when it rains you put on a coat and you push me out of his office and close the door and i'm like 
okay. And I went and talked to Chris and Phil about it. I told them they burst into laughter and that line ended up in the movie. It's what Tim tells Flint. <laughs> and then like, I think five days later, that guy was fired and a new boss came in. So I didn't like, so like there's all these things that you just can't see. Um, and I, and I think honestly what ha- what happened is we spent enough money on the movie that at some point they were like, it's cheaper just to finish it and to, than to <laughs> shut it down. So the movie came out and because of that, I think the film has a quirkiness and it's an oddness. And it was one of those things. Every time we hit a screening, I thought we'd made the best version of the movie. And every time we, we, we came out of the screening and got hammered by the studio, I never thought we'd recover. And every time I give a lot of credit. I mean, I, they deserve everything. Chris Miller and Phil Lord, they were like punching bags and they kept bouncing up with new ideas. And it was a real lesson in terms of my own creative process to really trust that you can always come up with a better idea. Because I really do believe the final version of that movie was the best version in the film, at least in terms of where it was then. I mean, if we had another five years, who knows how good it could be. But um, – <laughs> I don't know. Resilience is something that artists aren't necessarily tremendously great at. Uh, I know I wasn't when I was a kid. Like if if you didn't like my drawing, you suddenly didn't like anything about me. You know, you hated my my family, my heritage, you know, my everything. It was just like in that drawing is everything. And it's not that way. And, And it was a real good lesson to kind of calm down about this stuff and really kind of take it in stride. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I'm curious. You know, maybe the answer is just drawing, but but what are your favorite things to work on right now? Um, you know, I love writing. I really love I love the craft of of kind of solving story problems. You know, drawing is definitely something I I, I love. I, I wish I could do more drawing for myself. I think it's one of those things where I don't know if you feel this, like, you know, you remember what it was like to go to life drawing when you were in college and just, you know, to sit there and enjoy the process and not care whether or not you got a portfolio piece and i think a lot of what we do on production is just it just you know it's great and i love it but it's not the same as sort of just having fun and drawing so to me that's like going to the gym i hate doing it until i do it and then i love it you know what i mean so it's you feel (laughs) but yeah and and, you know I, i i you have to have other things in life too i think as a creative person i find i never i never I never find the best solutions while sitting at my desk. Usually it's when I'm walking my dogs or spending time with my kids or I go to the bar. You know, it's that slightly inebriated state, you know, first thing in the morning when you're on the <laughs> toilet or in the shower or like three in, the, three in the morning at night, you have an idea and you think you solved it. And in the morning, you realize you didn't solve anything, but maybe there's a pathway to a better idea. It's, it's I love that process. And I kind of feel like you have to wander in order to, to do it well. Um, you have to go for walks. You have to kind of get out of your headspace and you have to do other things. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a proponent of hobbies, but I don't really have one that I like more than others. It's just sort of, it's good to have a life. I think I have definitely more insights into other parts of the art and design business. What's the culture around Hollywood around self-promotion? Like how much is, is it is it cool to kind of like market and promote yourself yeah. or is it is it generally frowned upon or what's that like? It's funny because I think, you know, I think in this industry, um, self-promotion definitely is it's just part of the game. Um, but ironically, I think with animators and a lot of people who kind of survive in this industry, it's it's a bit more of a team sport. And I think you always have to be a little careful sort of how you handle that. Um, I know the one thing that that I worry about is, is you know, once you're on production, you got to be really careful what you say and what you put out there because it's always owned by somebody else. So mm-hmm. quite often the safest thing to do is to kind of, you know, 
keep your head down and, 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 and not blog, not tweet, not, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. Because it, there's, there's dangers with that. However, I mean, what I'm seeing in the current marketplace with Amazon and Hulu and Netflix and this nonlinear structure to, um, to how people consume media, I'm seeing a lot of people not doing the studio system and succeeding and doing very well. Um, you know, there's a, there's a, a collective up in Toronto called Imaginism Studios, and they're a design house. And basically, they do they started out doing everything from ads to you know uh, work for hire on features. And Bobby, who owns it, started up the schoolism where basically he's like, you don't need to be in a classroom to learn. You know, he draws like the best people from the world of of the art form and tries to put them out there online to, to meet people. And he started doing that early 2000 when no one else was doing it. And, 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 you know, I'm seeing people like Bobby and his studio starting to compete in a very viable way with the big houses. And that's all through promotion. And I think, so I think modern the people who are not in the studio system have a different sort of set of skills to learn than people like me, the dinosaurs who are in that system. Um, so I, I do think the world is changing and that paradigm is really all about how you manage yourself online and how you manage your, what you say and what you do. Yeah. Well, I'd love to talk to you about the cool project you're working on right now, but I know we can't talk about that. <laughs> so one of my curiosities is, uh, does it change from project to project as to when you can talk about a particular project or how do you know when it's okay to talk about what you did on that job? I, I mean, usually the rule of thumb is if it's in Walmart, you can talk about it. <laughs> and then there's a different, different scenarios. So like when I was directing and we were on junket, of course we could talk about the movie because that's yeah. what they wanted us to do. So I mean, there is that promotional side of things where it's okay. And, and usually it depends on where you are in the food chain and the context of the conversation. Mm-hmm. But no spoilers, yeah. please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have um, definitely worked on some really fun movies. And uh, I, I know my kids in particular have watched Hotel Transylvania more times than I care to admit because I, oh, right. <laughs> I may have that one memorized. But including... Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, Cloudy 2, which is the one you were the director on, which is awesome, and uh, a couple of the kids' TV shows that I'm also familiar with, Handy Manny, Max and Ruby, Shaun the Sheep, and, and your, you know, folks, you can check out Chris's uh, IMDB record if you want to see his full, <laughs> full <laughs> list. And quite a few movies, yeah. Do you have any, uh, maybe it's like picking out your favorite child, but but what are some of your favorites out of the productions you've worked on so far? Hmm. I mean, open season was my first feature. And so that one's always sort of got a tender spot. I really loved the villain in that film, Shaw. He just sort of seemed like somebody I knew from my hometown. And, 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 uh, that was the first movie where I really felt like a writer or I felt like I was invited to participate in the writing process. You know what I mean? And so yeah. that was, that was really great. Um, you know, Cloudy was a defining film. I really loved living in, in, in the west of England and working on the Ardman projects. So Arthur Christmas, Pirates, and Sean, um, they're all really special to me in terms of the people you meet and living in a different culture was really amazing. Yeah, I don't know. I guess they're all a little different. Uh, even even some of the TV shows, it's funny, like, I, I, I mean, you're a designer. I mean, 
when I see some of that old work, like I remember what I was doing at the time, what music I was listening to, what I was eating, you know, how old the kids were. And like, just like, it's such a, a visceral sight and sense memory when I look back at these films. And usually the ones that I was the most miserable on are the ones I look back with the most fondness. So I guess it is like raising your kids, you know, <laughs> if it's too easy, it's too easy, right? <laughs> what would you say was your proudest moment so far? In in this industry, you mean? Yeah. Gosh, I don't know. I mean, this is not going to sound overly – this is a name-dropping one. So, okay, so my kids my kids grew up in Hollywood in the way that they kind of knew what I did and they weren't all that impressed with – I mean, they weren't impressed, but it's like any kid. It's just like that's what dad does. He goes – gets up in the morning, he leaves, and he comes home into the day, and then he drinks. Um, but no, the uh, – <laughs> Um, they were, they were big, how I met your mother fans and, uh, Neil Patrick Harris was the voice of Steve on the cloudy franchise. And oh, so right. he was coming into the studio with his kids and, and his spouse to watch the film. And, and I knew he was coming in and I was supposed to, you know, meet him and I worked with him on, on both films. So it was, you know, friendly enough as everybody in Hollywood's friendly. Enough. So I had the kids in the car, picked them up from school. And I just said, we have to go to the work and, you know, it's like an errand. It's like, oh, okay, it's fine then. But they could tell they weren't excited. So I get to the studio. I was like, just come with me. And so I'm standing there. And then the car pulls up and Neil Patrick Harris, Barney steps out of the car, comes over, gives their dad a hug and then he gives them hugs. And it's just like, it's like that moment is like, so it is just like where Hollywood is kind of pure, where like the magic is real. And these are people, you know what I mean? Like, and yeah. that, was, that was, that was a really cool moment. The other happy moment, I know there's another actor based one. Uh, we were on cloudy one and Mr. T came into the studio and he came in uh, it was after Katrina, so he didn't have his bling on. He was he was a humbler kind of, uh, you know, his protest was, you know, I'm going to be, I'm, if people are suffering, I'm not going to wear my bling. Yeah. But he came in with a Ralph's bag full of Mr. T toys. And he went around and he handed them out to everybody <laughs> in the studio. And Mary Hidalgo, our casting agent, asked him if he'd like a coffee. And he said, you wouldn't, you wouldn't ask Mr. Coffee if he'd like a tea, you know. So it was just like... <laughs> Took a while for that joke to land in my head, but it was. I just, I just. When when you meet an actor and they are who they who they are, it's really special. Um, so that was pretty cool. <laughs> I'm gonna be laughing about that. That's a good. That's a good dad joke. I think. Well, I got another one, another, another actor one. So uh, we were recording James Caan. He was the voice of Tim. And he's, uh, you know, he was in the rodeo. So he's kind of, he's an old man. So he's a little bit beat up. He's still really cool, though. And he comes in. He, he, ah, I just was at the doctor. My arm's all screwed up and stuff. And he's like, oh, does it feel my elbow? And my, my partner, Cody, uh, co-director, he wouldn't do it. He gets a little squicked out about stuff. I'm like, I'm not going to have this opportunity again. So I, I put my finger into James Caan's elbow. And it literally went into the first knuckle. Like, like this is like, there's nothing there. There. So I can honestly say I penetrated Sonny Corleone I, I, <laughs> in a completely, you know, family-friendly way. And when is that going to happen again in my life? You know, <laughs> how many other people could say that? I don't know. Yes, see, this is why you go to Hollywood to get these stories. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, everybody we talk to on this show, it turns out, is uh, a little bit obsessed with with something or another. What would what would you say that you're most obsessed with right now? Hmm. Um. I mean, just in terms of the the, the media and, and it art. Could be there? anything. Could be anything. 
is it fair to say HBO? Like I just got HBO now and I'm literally going through every series and I'm just obsessed with like how good their production design is, like just how good Game of Thrones is. And I want to be cynical about it because everybody's talking about it, but I just, I cannot, it's like crack. I cannot get enough of it. And just like everything from the costume, although I am bothered by this one thing. I'm not going to, no spoilers, but on the wall, why don't they wear hats? I mean, if you look at all of Nordic <laughs> cultures, they always have some version of a hat, you know, in, in cold weather so it, right. that, that really it's really bugging me you're a designer so it's going to bug yeah. you too now and it's going to be out there in the world so that had not can, occurred to me at all but i'm i'm on board with this this issue this is a canadian thing you know <laughs> <laughs> um so no i'm obsessed with that i'm really and i'm really obsessed with um i'm, I'm obsessed with the future of design in uh in in feature animation i'm curious about where our movies are going um, and then, you know, part of it is I'm trying to get a couple of projects off the ground, but I'm, I'm just, I'm feeling like there's a, a new awakening. And every time I see this new technology where it's like, we can move a painting and it looks like a painting and it doesn't cost us a hundred million dollars. It's pretty amazing. So I'm, I'm very, very obsessed with sort of how, you know, how independent film is being created right now. So that's sort of this new thing that I'm really thinking a lot about. So do you have any uh, predictions for us for the future of the film industry? Well, my prediction is that the budgets of these, at least in my industry, the budgets of the features are going to come down. The way these movies are made are, is, is going to become more internet-based. So I think you're going to find talent from all around the world participating in different ways. And I think I think at some point you're going to see, in the way that, that in the old days of 2D, you had movements where, you know um, – the movies all looked the same and then suddenly somebody broke the paradigm and then and, and there was a shift and you started to see more of a personal stamp in terms of the final look of the film coming from different artists. And I mm-hmm. think the I think the CG world is ready for that. I think the technology is there. I think it's just a matter of the courage of, you know, taking some bold risks with these films. And I really think it's come that's tied to budget. You know, the costs have got to come down. Um, so I, I'm I'm curious. I mean, I think stop motion has been doing it because they've been living in this sort of bubble of sad anonymousness. Like they don't, they, you know, their films want to make a lot more money than they do. But because they don't, I think there's just this risk that they take. And I'm, I'm so impressed with what Like is doing. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm so in love with Ardman. I, you know, it was my favorite studio I ever worked at. And I, and I hope CG eventually kind of finds its way into that sort of, that sort of choice driven narrative. Sure. So we'll see. Cool. We'll have to see uh, how many of those predictions come true in the next uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't even few know. weeks before this releases. <laughs> More wishes than predictions, I think, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so do you have any um, any dream projects that you, you'd like to take on in the next few years? Um, there's a screenplay I wrote, which is about two brothers in a magic, a magic uh, hockey pond, um, which is a very kind of personal story of being the kid growing up in Southern Ontario who didn't like hockey, who now I, I'm obsessed and love hockey. There's an obsession. I love hockey. So I, I, I think uh, that that coming of age story is something I'm really, I'm really kind of passionate about. Um, and it's a live action one. So it's sort of an interesting, it's a live action hybrid film. So I kind of, I'm, I'm hoping that I can get that off the ground. So that's, that's sort of my current, my current passion. Awesome. Is there anything that you, sort of watch out for if you have a, an opportunity with a project? Is it 
Um, are there any particular things that are red flags or you just know it's a, it's not a great fit for you? Yeah. I mean, I think to, to, to the most important thing beyond, you know, the viability of whether the project's going to get made is the team, the people you're working with. Um, mm-hmm. You spend so much, you spend more time with these people than you do your family. And, and I feel like for art to be, for, for me, for art, for, for the artistic process to be worthwhile, it is, it is a mixture of being challenged by honesty and, and, you know, protected by, by kindness. So those two things I think are really important. And, and, and I, and I don't mean kindness as in a soft, you know, uh, everybody should get milk and cookies. I mean, kindness in that we, you know, respect and, and, you know, the sense of giving and the yes and room, the yes and room is really important to me. So you share ideas, people pick up things. It doesn't mean that you can't, you know, have opinions that differ or differ, you know, through the course of the process. But I think, mm-hmm. you know, I think, I think, you know, honesty is something that's super important when you feel like there's a movie that is worth making. If everybody's honest, then you're going to make a better film. And the kindness is how you be, how you, how you relay your honesty. And I think, you know, I've worked with, with people who are yellers and screamers and I've worked with people who are bipolar and all of that isn't worth it anymore. You don't have to go through that kind of pain to make art. I don't believe it, at least not in animation in our process. So I think the best jobs are the ones where you have a very confident writer's room and, and you know, working together to make one thing. Because at the end of the day, the audience doesn't give a rat's ass whether or not, you know, I drew that scene or someone else drew that scene. They just care about the movie. So that's the right. final. You, you got to leave your ego at the door. But you got to also have the ego close enough that you can, you know, that you're you're still, you know, you still got to fight for your, what you believe. In, but you got to do mm-hmm. it the right way. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so cool it, people. Cool people. That's the answer. That's yeah. <laughs> nice. Well, I think cool people are cool. Yeah. So let's let's say you have a bad project though, a bad day or just a rough leg of the project. How do you sure. how do you shake that off? Like how do you kind of help yourself move on to what's next or find inspiration again? It's alcohol, it's yelling, <laughs> it's you know, it's you know, it's 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 the thing that all people do. You listen to listen to loud music and you know, I, I go from I go from the angry stuff I grew up listening to, you know, a little bit of Iron Man, then I get the free bird and then I feel a little bit better and then when I'm at Neil Young I'm mellow and usually by then I've had a few <laughs> beers and I can sleep. Um you know, there was an old uh, one of one of the artist art teachers I had back in college talked about the bubble analogy. Have you ever heard of this? I don't think so. So it's like your 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 skill level's here and you're kind of growing your skill level. And at some point you hit like a wall and it's like a bubble. And it's really hard to get through that wall. And then once you pop that bubble, you start to grow again and you grow really quickly. And then you hit another wall and then you have to pop that bubble. And anytime you pop a bubble, it's painful. It's like punching your fist into a wall to make it stronger. Mm. And I th- I think when I was in my 20s, I didn't I didn't know how to handle those bad days quite so efficiently as I do now. Um, having said that, I had a day last week where I was, I ride my bike in LA. So I was riding my bike home at midnight and just screaming my head off because no one was there to listen. You know, and it was just, <laughs> that was my therapy. And, and you have frustrating days. I mean, you have to be passionate about what you're doing. And so if you're passionate on the good days, you got to be passionate on the bad days. Yeah. The trick is to be professional and not, you know, don't make it worse than it is by getting personal with things, either taking things personally or putting personal in. personal vendettas out. You have to make it about the work. 
And then, and, and part of that's, you know, calming down, which goes back to what I said earlier, you got to have other things like, you know, if you're frustrated at work, go for a walk, work it out in your head, do all, say everything you want to say to everybody in that room and then come in that room and make it about the project. You know what I mean? Without having said everything that you were going to say about everybody in that room. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think one of the the healthiest things you can learn in a great uh, art or design program is, is really how to run a critique, like how to give somebody feedback and, and talk about the work and, and not even so much, uh, giving it is one thing, but also knowing how to receive it <laughs> is yeah. also a really big deal. Yeah. 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 And you know what? Very rarely do I ever get upset now when I get criticism on my work. I usually get upset when I, when I don't see it, you know what I mean? Quite often it's my own mm-hmm. thing. I mean, right. like where you, you don't see the punch coming. Like you, you think it's working and then you screen it and it didn't work. So quite often I'm, I'm more mad at myself than I am other people these days. Do you have any, any people you particularly look up to in the designer film space? Any, any heroes? Yeah. I mean, um, you know, going back to my childhood, when I saw secret of Nim, that movie just blew my mind. And, and, um, I met Don at the tail end of Anastasia, Don Bluth, and uh, you know I was lucky enough to sit over his shoulder and watch him draw a few times. And that man could just draw like I've never seen anybody draw before. So that I just even even though he sort of you know had his ups and downs in his career, I still to this day can remember how fluid he was drawing and wish I could get that good. You know, just that amount of just. The touch, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for. Um, I got people who I know personally, you know, uh, who I admire tremendously. There's an artist named Robin Joseph out of Toronto who just blows me away. I, I, I'm so in love with his work. Uh, yeah, one of our lead animators that I did a lot of movies with, Pete Nash, who just, you know, not only is he a classy guy, but he cannot, he can, he cannot do a bad thing in his animation. Like it's just, and he's like this hidden guy that, you know, anybody who works with him knows how great he is. But so many, there's so many of these people out there in the industry, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of the, the big guys, I mean, I've always admired Brad Bird in terms of his career and the fact that he's always made movies that feel honest. Iron Giant and Incredibles and you know I, I feel yeah. like I feel like he surrounds himself with like you know I mean it's cliche to talk about Pixar but at the time you know you had you know with Teddy Newton and and and, and uh, you know just Ronnie Del Carmen and all these fantastic story artists and designers and animators out there like there's so many people to look up to in our industry um, it's it's very humbling very humbling and of course Bill Watterson you know I, I, I hope <laughs> right I actually hope I never meet him because I kind of I kind of love him being an enigma. You know, it's just sort of this person in my childhood that defined what comedy is to me. You know, it's not yeah. comedy is not really always about the joke. Sometimes it's about the pathos and sometimes it's about, you know, really owning your sadness and really sort of being honest about it. And, and, and you know, also just owning the exuberance of going down a hill. Like I just I think it's still for me it, growing up in the 80s that that's still the purest, the purest art I've ever sort of responded to. So do story artists regularly get employed in, in live action films as well, or typically just for animation or to what, what extent or degree would you um, potentially work in the live action space? Uh, This is, I mean, the job I'm currently on is my first live action job. It's a different, it's a different set of variables in live action. Um, but it's, it, there's a lot of people working in live action. I think if I can summarize where, where I think the difference is in animation, you're really trying to workshop 
the process, like not only just the shots, but also the the content. Whereas in live action, it's it's a little bit more about the the visual function of what the camera's going to see and what they have to build, and less about the storytelling. Because you know you're going to hire, you're going to put uh, you know, Brad Pitt out there, and he's going to do that job. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So you, right. the nuancing of the performance is less important in in live action because of the nature of how that production pipeline works. Um, but all these movies, like you think about all the big movies that are not not straight up live action, like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the, you know, Transformers, all the Marvels, they're all, I mean, you have to animatic those things because mm-hmm. it, for the same reasons that we, we do animatics for, for animation, which is to save money and learn, you have to do that in live action. Now, some, some productions are using previs, which is sort of like, you know, a storyboarding with a live camera and there's pros and cons to that. But I think at any given point, if you look at storyboarding as a planning, organizing, opportunity to learn about your movie it's super valuable even in commercials you know commercials and music videos and it really does depend on the director some directors love it because it gives them control some directors who want to just shoot you know in the moment i can see where we get in the way of that you know i mean so it really does depend on sort of the process but it's there's a lot of work out there and gaming is another industry that is like booming. So it's, uh, you know, for any young people looking to get into this line of work, it's, it's, I, I see nothing but growth potential. <laughs> there you go, kids, future yeah. job opportunities. So if you weren't in Hollywood working in the film industry, what do you think you'd be doing? I mean, I got a little farm up in Canada. I got a little donkey farm where we grow a lot of tomatoes and we have, uh, we have, you know, chickens and stuff. So, I'd probably be doing that and painting a lot and just, you know, reading a lot of comics and painting a lot and still being the art kid. <laughs> Love it. So what, what's the best piece of advice you feel like you've ever received or that you've passed along to young story artists? Um, I think learn your base skills. So, um, you know, learn, learn, I mean, the computer is going to, going to, going to teach you a lot and the technology is going to keep changing. But if you know how to draw, how to write, how to, um, how to set a camera, how to, how to, you know, composition, all of those skills are, are, are base. And no matter what technology you're using, it's going to be valuable. So if you're, you know, if you transition completely into live action and you're, you know, you're a camera person, those skills, that eye that you've developed drawing is still going to be the, the thing that's going to keep your job and, and create products. So I tell kids, you know, the, you know, life drawing, you know, plain air, go out and paint, you know, just every day, carry a sketchbook, you know, write every day. Uh, all of these things are the, that's our gym. That's what we need to do if we want to stay kind of in the world. What do you think you'll be doing 10 years from now? 10 years from now? Yeah. Well, in Hollywood, I'll be, I'll be thrown out because I'll be old and fat and probably, <laughs> probably sitting in a bar talking about the day I did this podcast. This is like the apex <laughs> of my fame. <laughs> How many famous animators do you know? I mean, we don't, we don't go that way. I mean, <laughs> um, I'll probably, you know what, I think... I, I feel like my career is going more towards the development side and, and, and you know, hopefully, um, you know, become an engine for other content. That's what I really love to do. Like, uh, you know, I, right now I've got, you know, I've got a TV series going out in Vancouver and I got the movie I'm currently working on here. And then, you know, a couple of other th- scripts in development. And I love the dynamics kind of sort of opportunity with kind of 
helping other people and being part of many processes and sort of in that producer role, um, that that's become interesting to me, but I still hope I'm drawing. I, you know, I don't know. There's a lot that can go wrong. I'm, I'm clumsy, so I could lose an arm. <laughs> uh, my vision is terrible. That could go. I do drink more than I should. So who knows what's <laughs> happened to the liver? I mean, all these coping mechanisms, they all could come back and haunt me. So it could be really just, just, I could just be depending on my kids. Just they prop up on a tractor and let me cut the grass every day. That could that could be ten years from now. <laughs> well, in the in the near future, I hope you'll continue to share with us all of the super secret projects you're working on right now, so we can share those with our audience as well and 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 brag on you a little bit. But um, in the meantime, outside of IMDb, where can people go and connect with you online or learn more about what you're up to? Um, I mean, I've got an old dusty blog that's out there and certainly I'm on Facebook. If you just spell my name right, you can find me. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, I don't know. It's, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find out there. Cool. In that case, we will, we will track you down because we have the technology to find you online. (laughs) (laughs) But Chris, I really appreciate you taking some time to chat with us today and looking forward to, uh, airing this on obsessed with design. So Thanks for being here and thank you for being obsessed with design. Okay, guys, this is show number 22 in the books. Thanks again to Chris Perrin for taking some time to chat with us today. Get all of our show notes at obsessedshow.com. You can get links to all the projects that Chris talked about today and a few samples of his drawings as well. While you're at it, head on over to iTunes and please give us a rating and a review And you can be sure to hit that subscribe button as well. Obsessed with Design is a product of the Design Obsessed folks at Miles Herndon, located 13 floors above beautiful downtown Indianapolis. Check us out online at milesherndon.com. Be sure to give me a shout on Twitter at Josh Miles and let me know who you think we should interview next. Talk to you soon.